36. For details he misses the importance of great movements, and of great leaders who are accustomed to ignore details, and in his joy of describing events he often loses sight of underlying causes. In a word, he is without historical insight, and his work, though fascinating, is seldom placed among the reliable histories of England. General Characteristics To the reader who studies Macaulay's brilliant essays and a few chosen chapters of his history, three things soon become manifest. First, Macaulay's art is that of a public speaker rather than that of a literary man. He has a wonderful command of language, and he makes his meaning clear by striking phrases, vigorous antitheses, anecdotes, and illustrations. His style is so clear that he who runs may read, and from beginning to end he never loses the attention of his readers. Second, Macaulay's good spirits and enthusiasm are contagious, as he said himself. He wrote, out of a full head, chiefly for his own pleasure or recreation, and one who writes joyously generally awakens a sense of pleasure in his readers. Third, Macaulay has the defect of his qualities. He reads and remembers so much that he has no time to think or to form settled opinions. As Gladstone said, Macaulay is always conversing or recollecting or reading or composing, but reflecting never. So he wrote his brilliant essay on Milton, which took all England by storm and said of it afterward that it contained, scarcely a paragraph which his mature judgment approved, whether he speaks or writes, he has always before him an eager audience, and he feels within him the born orator's power to hold and fascinate, so he gives loose rein to his enthusiasm, quotes from a hundred books, and in his delight at entertaining us forgets that the first quality of a critical or historical work is to be accurate, and the second to be interesting. Thomas Carlyle 1795-1881 in marked contrast with Macaulay, the brilliant and cheerful essayist, is Thomas Carlyle, the prophet and censor of the 19th century. Macaulay is the practical man of affairs, helping and rejoicing in the progress of his beloved England. Carlyle lives apart from all practical interests, looks with distrust on the progress of his age, and tells men that truth, justice, and immortality are the only word or the objects of human endeavor. Macaulay is delighted with material comforts, he is most at home in brilliant and fashionable company, and he writes, even when ill and suffering, with unfailing hopefulness and good nature. Carlyle is like a Hebrew prophet just in from the desert, and the burden of his message island, woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Both men are, in different ways, typical of the century, and somewhere between the two extremes the practical. Helpful activity of Macaulay and the spiritual agony and conflict of Carlyle we shall find the measure of an age which has left the deepest impress upon our own. Life of Carlyle. Carlyle was born at Ecclefechan, Dumfriesshire, in 1795, a few months before Burns's death, and before Scott had published his first work. Like Burns, he came of peasant stock. Strong, simple, God-fearing folk whose influence in Carlyle's later life is beyond calculation. Of his mother he says, she was too mild and peaceful for the planet she lived in, and of his father, a stonemason, he writes, could I write my books as he built his houses, walk my way so manfully through this shadow world, and leave it with so little blame, it were more than all my hopes. Of Carlyle's early school life we have some interesting glimpses in Sargerisartus. At nine years he entered the Annan Grammar School where he was bullied by the older boys, who nicknamed him Tom the Tearful. For the teachers of those days he has only ridicule, calling them, hidebound pedants, 
and he calls the school by the suggestive German name of Hinterschlag Gymnasium, at the wish of his parents, who intended Carlyle for the ministry. He endured this hateful school life till 1809, when he entered Edinburgh University. There he spent five miserable years, of which his own record is, I was without friends, experience, or connection in the sphere of human business, was of slight humor, proud enough and to spare, and had begun my long curriculum of dyspepsia. This nagging illness was the cause of much of that irritability of temper which frequently led him to scold the public, and for which he has been harshly handled by unfriendly critics. The period following his university course was one of storm and stress for Carlyle. Much to the grief of the father whom he loved, he had given up the idea of entering the ministry. Wherever he turned, doubts like a thick fog surrounded him. Doubts of God, of his fellow men, of human progress, of himself. He was poor, and to earn an honest living was his first problem. He tried successively teaching school, tutoring, the study of law, and writing miscellaneous articles for the Edinburgh Encyclopedia, all the while he was fighting his doubts living, as he says, in a continual, indefinite, pining fear, after six or seven years of mental agony, which has at times a suggestion of Bunyan's spiritual struggle, the crisis came in 1821, when Carlyle suddenly shook off his doubts and found himself, all at once, he says in Sartre, there arose a thought in me, and I asked myself, what art thou afraid of, wherefore like a coward dost thou forever pip and whimper, and go cowering and trembling, despicable biped, what is the sum total of the worst that lies before thee, death, well, death, and say the pangs of Tofa too, and all that the devil and man may, will, or can do against thee, hast thou not a heart, canst thou not suffer whatsoever it be, and, as a child of freedom, go outcast, trample Tofa itself under my feet, while it consumes thee, let it come then, I will meet it and defy it, and as I so thought, there rushed like a stream of fire over my whole soul, and I shook base fear away from me forever. This struggle between fear and faith, and the triumph of the latter, is recorded in two remarkable chapters, the everlasting no, and the everlasting yea, of Sartre Resartus. Carlyle now definitely resolved on a literary life, and began with any work that offered a bare livelihood. He translated Legendre's geometry from the French, wrote numerous essays for the magazines, and continued his study of German while making translations from that language. His translation of Goethe's Wilhelm Meister appeared in 1824, his Life of Schiller in 1825, and his Specimens of German Romance in 1827. He began at this time a correspondence with Goethe, his literary hero, which lasted till the German poet's death in 1832. While still busy with hack work, Carlyle, in 1826, married Jane Welsh. A brilliant and beautiful woman, whose literary genius almost equaled that of her husband. Soon afterwards, influenced chiefly by poverty, the Carlyles retired to a farm, at Crajan Cox Hill, a dreary and lonely spot, far from friends and even neighbors. They remained here six years, during which time Carlyle wrote many of his best essays, and Sartre Resartus, his most original work. The latter went begging among publishers for two years and was finally published serially in Fraser's magazine, in 1833-1834. By this time Carlyle had begun to attract attention as a writer, and, thinking that one who made his living by the magazines should be in close touch with the editors, 
took his wife's advice and moved to London to seek work and bread. He settled in Cheney Row, Chelsea, a place made famous by Moore, Erasmus, Bolingbroke, Smollett, Lee Hunt, and many lesser lights of literature, and began to enjoy the first real peace he had known since childhood. In 1837 appeared the French Revolution, which first made Carlyle famous, and in the same year, led by the necessity of earning money, he began the series of lectures German, Literature 1837, Periods of European Culture 1838, Revolutions of Modern Europe 1839, Heroes and Hero Worship 1841 which created a sensation in London. It was, says Lee Hunt, as if some Puritan had come to life again, liberalized by German philosophy and his own intense reflection and experience, though Carlyle set himself against the spirit of his age calling the famous reform billet, progress into darkness, and democracy, the rule of the worst rather than the best. His rough sincerity was unquestioned, and his remarks were more quoted than those of any other living man. He was supported, moreover, by a rare circle of friends, Edward Irving, Southey, Sterling, Landor, Lee Hunt, Dickens, Mill, Tennyson, Browning, and, most helpful of all, Emerson who had visited Carlyle at Crajan Potok in 1833. It was due largely to Emerson's influence that Carlyle's works were better appreciated, and brought better financial rewards. In America than in England, Carlyle's fame reached its climax in the monumental history of Frederick the Great 1858-1865, published after 13 years of solitary toil, which, in his own words, made entire devastation of home life and happiness. The proudest moment of his life was when he was elected to succeed Gladstone as Lord Rector of Edinburgh University, in 1865, the year in which Frederick the Great was finished, in the midst of his triumph, and while he was in Scotland to deliver his inaugural address, his happiness was suddenly destroyed by the death of his wife, a terrible blow, from which he never recovered, he lived on for fifteen years, shorn of his strength and interest in life and his closing hours were like the dull sunset of a November day. Only as we remember his grief and remorse at the death of the companion who had shared his toil but not his triumph, can we understand the sorrow that pervades the pages of his reminiscences. He died in 1881, and at his own wish was buried, not in Westminster Abbey, but among his humble kinsfolk in Eclifecan. However much we may differ from his philosophy or regret the harshness of his minor works, we shall probably all agree in this sentiment from one of his own letters, that the object of all his struggle and writing was, that men should find out and believe the truth, and match their lives to it. Works of Carlyle. There are two widely different judgments of Carlyle as a man and a writer. The first, which is founded largely on his minor writings, like Chartism, Latter-day Pamphlets, and Shooting Niagara, declares that he is a misanthrope and dyspeptic with a barbarous style of writing, that he denounces progress, democracy, science, America, Darwin, everybody and everything that he does not understand, that his literary opinions are largely prejudices, that he began as a prophet and ended as a scold, and that in denouncing shams of every sort he was something of a sham himself, since his practice was not in accord with his own preaching. The second judgment, which is founded upon heroes and hero worship, Cromwell, and Sartorisartus, declares that these works are the supreme manifestation of genius, that their rugged, picturesque style makes others look feeble or colorless by comparison, and that the author is the greatest teacher, leader, 
and profit of the 19th century. Somewhere between these two extremes will be found the truth about Carlyle. We only note here that, while there are some grounds for the first and favorable criticism, we are to judge an author by his best rather than by his worst work, and that a man's aims as well as his accomplishments must be taken into consideration, as it is written, whereas it was in thine heart to build in house unto my name, thou didst well that it was in thine heart, whatever the defects of Carlyle and his work, in his heart he was always planning a house or temple to the God of truth and justice. Carlyle's important works may be divided into three general classes, critical and literary essays, historical works, and sargarisargas, the last being in a class by itself, since there is nothing like it in literature. To these should be added a biography, the admirable life of John Sterling, and Carlyle's letters and reminiscences, which are more interesting and suggestive than some of his better-known works. We omit here all consideration of translations, and his intemperate denunciations of men and institutions in Chartism, latter-day pamphlets, and other essays, which add nothing to the author's fame or influence, of the essays, which are all characterized by Carlyle's zeal to get at the heart of things, and to reveal the soul rather than the works of a writer. The best are those on Burns, Scott, Novellis, Gerda, Characteristics, Signs of the Times, and Boswell's Life of Johnson. In the famous essay on Burns, which is generally selected for special study, we note four significant things. One Carlyle is peculiarly well fitted for his task, having many points in common with his hero. Two in most of his work Carlyle, by his style and mannerisms and positive opinions, generally attracts our attention away from his subject, but in this essay he shows himself capable of forgetting himself for a moment. To an unusual extent he sticks to his subject, and makes us think of Burns rather than of Carlyle. The style, though unpolished, is fairly simple and readable and is free from the breaks, crudities, ejaculations, and general nodulosities which disfigure much of his work. 3. Carlyle has an original and interesting theory of biography and criticism. The object of criticism is to show the man himself, his aims, ideals, and outlook on the universe. The object of biography is to show what and how produced was the effect of society upon him, what and how produced was his effect on society. For Carlyle is often severe, even harsh, in his estimates of other men. But in this case the tragedy of Burns's life of fragments attracts and softens him. He grows enthusiastic and a rare thing for Carlyle apologizes for his enthusiasm in the striking sentence. We love Burns, and we pity him, and love and pity are prone to magnify. So he gives us the most tender and appreciative of his essays and one of the most illuminating criticisms of Burns that has appeared in our language. The central idea of Carlyle's historical works is found in his Heroes and Hero Worship 1841, his most widely read book, Universal History, he says, is at bottom the history of the great men who have worked here. To get at the truth of history we must study not movements but men, and read not state papers but the biographies of heroes. His summary of history as presented in this work has six divisions, one the hero as divinity, having for its general subject Odin, the type Norseman, who, Carlyle thinks, was some old heroic chief, afterwards deified by his countrymen, to the hero as prophet, treating of Muhammad and the rise of Islam, three the hero as poet, in which Dandy and Shakespeare are taken as types, for the hero as priest, or religious leader, in which Luther appears as the hero of the Reformation, 
and Knox as the hero of Puritanism, 5 the hero as man of letters, in which we have the curious choice of Johnson, Rousseau, and Burns, 6 the hero as king, in which Cromwell and Napoleon appear as the heroes of reform by revolution. It is needless to say that Heroes is not a book of history, neither is it scientifically written in the manner of Gibbon. With science in any form Carlyle had no patience, and he miscalculated the value of that patient search for facts and evidence which science undertakes before building any theories, either of kings or cabbages. The book, therefore, abounds in errors, but they are the errors of carelessness and are perhaps of small consequence. His misconception of history, however, is more serious, with the modern idea of history, as the growth of freedom among all classes, he has no sympathy. The progress of democracy was to him an evil thing, a turning of the face towards darkness and anarchy. At certain periods, according to Carlyle, God sends us geniuses, sometimes as priests or poets, sometimes as soldiers or statesmen, but in whatever guise they appear, these are our real rulers. He shows, moreover, that whenever such men appear, multitudes follow them, and that a man's following is a sure index of his heroism and kinship. Whether we agree with Carlyle or not, we must accept for the moment his peculiar view of history, else heroes can never open its treasures to us. The book abounds in startling ideas, expressed with originality and power, and is pervaded throughout by an atmosphere of intense moral earnestness. The more we read it, the more we find to admire and to remember. Carlyle's French Revolution 1837 is to be taken more seriously as a historical work, but here again his hero worship comes to the front, and his book is a series of flashlights thrown upon men in dramatic situations, rather than a tracing of causes to their consequences. The very titles of his chapters, Bastria Redux, Windpags, Bright the War God, do violence to our conception of history, and are more suggestive of Carlyle's individualism than of French history. He is here the preacher rather than the historian, his text is the eternal justice, and his message is that all wrongdoing is inevitably followed by vengeance. His method is intensely dramatic. From a mass of historical details he selects a few picturesque incidents and striking figures, and his vivid pictures of the storming of the Bastille, the rush of the mob to Versailles, the death of Louis XVI, and the reign of terror, seem like the work of an eyewitness describing some terrible catastrophe. At times, as it portrays Danton, Robespierre, and the great characters of the tragedy. Carlyle's work is suggestive of an historical play of Shakespeare, and again, as it describes the rush and riot of men led by a lamental passion, it is more like a great prose epic, though not a reliable history in any sense. It is one of the most dramatic and stirring narratives in our language. Two other historical works deserve at least a passing notice. The History of Frederick the Great 1858-1865, in six volumes is a colossal picture of the life and times of the hero of the Prussian Empire, Oliver Cromwell's letters and speeches island in our personal judgment, Carlyle's best historical work. His idea is to present the very soul of the great Puritan leader. He gives us, as of first importance, Cromwell's own words, and connects them by a commentary in which other men and events are described with vigor and vividness. Cromwell was one of Carlyle's greatest heroes and in this case he is most careful to present the facts which occasion his own enthusiasm. The result island on the whole, the most lifelike picture of a great historical character that we possess. Other historians had heaped calumny upon Cromwell till the English public regarded him with prejudice and horror, 
and it is an indication of Carlyle's power that by a single book he revolutionized England's opinion of one of her greatest men. Carlyle's Sartre Resartes 1834, his only creative work, is a mixture of philosophy and romance, of wisdom and nonsense, a chaotic jumble of the author's thoughts, feelings, and experiences during the first 35 years of his life. The title, which means, The Tailor Patched Up, is taken from an old Scotch song. The hero is Diogenes Duffelstrack, a German professor at the University of Weissnick to don't know where, the narrative concerns this queer professor's life and opinions, and the central thought of the book is the philosophy of clothes, which are considered symbolically as the outward expression of spirit. Thus, man's body is the outward garment of his soul, and the universe is the visible garment of the invisible God. The arrangement of Sartre is clumsy and hard to follow. In order to leave himself free to bring in everything he thought about, Carlyle assumed the position of one who was translating and editing the old professor's manuscripts, which are supposed to consist of numerous sheets stuffed into twelve paper bags, each labeled with a sign of the zodiac. The editor pretends to make order out of this chaos, but he is free to jump from one subject to another and to state the most startling opinion by simply using quotation marks and adding a note that he is not responsible for Tufelstrach's crazy notions, which are in reality Carlyle's own dreams and ideals, partly because of the matter, which is sometimes incoherent, partly because of the style, which, though picturesque, is sometimes confused and ingrammatical. Sartre is not easy reading, but it amply repays whatever time and study we give to it. Many of its passages are more like poetry than prose, and one cannot read such chapters as The Everlasting Number, The Everlasting Yea, Reminiscences, and Natural Supernaturalism, and be quite the same man afterwards, for Carlyle's thought has entered into him, and he walks henceforth more gently, more reverently through the world, as in the presence of the Eternal. General Characteristics Concerning Carlyle's style there are almost as many opinions as there are readers. This is partly because he impresses different people in widely different ways, and partly because his expression varies greatly. At times he is calm, persuasive, grimly humorous, as if conversing, at other times, wildly exclamatory, as if he were shouting and waving his arms at the reader. We have spoken of Macaulay's style as that of the finished order and we might reasonably speak of Carlyle's as that of the exhorter, who cares little for methods so long as he makes a strong impression on his hearers. Every sentence is alive to its fingertips, writes a modern critic, and though Carlyle often violates the rules of grammar and rhetoric, we can well afford to let an original genius express his own intense conviction in his own vivid and picturesque way. Carlyle's message may be summed up into imperatives, labor, and be sincere. He lectured and wrote chiefly for the upper classes who had begun to think, somewhat sentimentally, of the conditions of the laboring men of the world, and he demanded for the latter, not charity or pity, but justice and honor. All labor, whether of head or hand, is divine, and labor alone justifies a man as a son of earth and heaven, to society, which Carlyle thought to be occupied wholly with conventional affairs. He came with the stamp of sincerity calling upon men to lay aside hypocrisy and to think and speak and love the truth. He had none of Addison's delicate satire and humor, and in his fury at what he thought was false he was generally unsympathetic and often harsh, but we must not forget that Thackeray who knew society much better than did Carlyle gave a very unflattering picture of it in Vanity Fair and the Book of Snobs. Apparently the age needed plain speaking, 
and Carlyle furnished it in scripture measure. Harriet Martineau, who knew the world for which Carlyle wrote, summed up his influence when she said that he had infused into the mind of the English nation sincerity, earnestness, healthfulness, and courage. If we add to the above message Carlyle's conceptions of the world as governed by a God of justice who never forgets, and of human history as an inarticulate Bible, slowly revealing the divine purpose, we shall understand better the force of his ethical appeal and the profound influence he exercised on the moral and intellectual life of the past century. John Ruskin 1819-1900 In approaching the study of Ruskin we are to remember, first of all, that we are dealing with a great and good man, who is himself more inspiring than any of his books. In some respects he is like his friend Carlyle, whose disciple he acknowledged himself to be, but he is broader in his sympathies, and in every way more hopeful, helpful, and humane. Thus, in the face of the drudgery and poverty of the competitive system, Carlyle proposed, with the grim satire of Swift's modest proposal, to organize an annual hunt in which successful people should shoot the unfortunate, and to use the game for the support of the army and navy. Ruskin, facing the same problem, wrote, I will endure it no longer quietly, but henceforward, with any few or many who will help, do my best to abate this misery. Then, leaving the field of art criticism, where he was the acknowledged leader, he begins to write of labor and justice, gives his fortune in charity, in establishing schools and libraries, and founds his street George's Guild of Workingmen, to put in practice the principles of brotherhood and cooperation for which he and Carlyle contended, though his style marks him as one of the masters of English prose. He is generally studied not as a literary man but as an ethical teacher, and we shall hardly appreciate his works unless we see behind every book the figure of the heroically sincere man who wrote it. Life. Ruskin was born in London, in 1819. His father was a prosperous wine merchant who gained a fortune in trade, and who spent his leisure hours in the company of good books and pictures. On his tombstone one may still read this inscription written by Ruskin, he was an entirely honest merchant and his memory is to all who keep it dear and helpful. His son, whom he loved to the uttermost and taught to speak truth, says this of him, Ruskin's mother, a devout and somewhat austere woman brought her son up with puritanical strictness, not forgetting Solomon's injunction that the rod and reproof give wisdom, of Ruskin's early years at Hearn Hill, on the outskirts of London. It is better to read his own interesting record in Preterit. It was in some respects a cramped and lonely childhood, but certain things which strongly molded his character are worthy of mention. First, he was taught by word and example in all things to speak the truth, and he never forgot the lesson. Second, he had few toys, and spent much time in studying the leaves, the flowers, the grass, the clouds, even the figures and colors of the carpet, and so laid the foundation for that minute and accurate observation which is manifest in all his writings. Third, he was educated first by his mother, then by private tutors, and so missed the discipline of the public schools. The influence of this lonely training is evident in all his work, like Carlyle. He is often too positive and dogmatic, the result of failing to test his work by the standards of other men of his age. Fourth, he was obliged to read the Bible every day and to learn long passages verbatim. The result of this training was, he says, to make every word of the scriptures familiar to Meyer in habitual music. We can hardly read a page of his later work without finding some reflection of the noble simplicity or vivid imagery of the sacred records. 
5. He traveled much with his father and mother, and his innate love of nature was intensified by what he saw on his leisurely journeys through the most beautiful parts of England and the continent, Ruskin entered Christ Church College, Oxford, in 1836, when only 17 years old, he was at this time a shy, sensitive boy, a lover of nature and of every art which reflects nature, but almost entirely ignorant of the ways of boys and men, an attack of consumption, with which he had long been threatened, caused him to leave Oxford in 1840, and for nearly two years he wandered over Italy searching for health and cheerfulness, and gathering materials for the first volume of Modern Painters, the book that made him famous. Ruskin's literary work began in childhood, when he was encouraged to write freely in prose and poetry. A volume of poems illustrated by his own drawings was published in 1859, after he had won fame as a prose writer. But, save for the drawings, it is of small importance. The first volume of Modern Painters 1843 was begun as a heated defense of the artist Turner, but it developed into an essay on art as a true picture of nature, not only in her outward aspect but in her inward spirit. The work, which was signed simply, Oxford Graduate, aroused a storm of mingled approval and protest, but however much critics warred over its theories of art, all were agreed that the unknown author was a master of descriptive prose. Ruskin now made frequent trips to the art galleries of the continent, and produced four more volumes of modern painters during the next 17 years. Meanwhile he wrote other books. Seven Lamps of Architecture 1849, Stones of Venice 1851-1853, Pre-Raphaelitism, and numerous lectures and essays, which gave him a place in the world of art similar to that held by Matthew Arnold in the world of letters. In 1869 he was appointed Professor of Art at Oxford, a position which greatly increased his prestige and influence, not only among students but among a great variety of people who heard his lectures and read his published works. Lectures on Art, Eratrapentelisi Lectures on Sculpture, Ariadne Florentina Lectures on Engraving, Michelangelo and Tintorite, The Art of England, Valderno Lectures on Tuscan Art, St. Mark's Rest of History of Venice. Mornings in Florence Studies in Christian Art, now much used as a guidebook to the picture galleries of Florence, The Laws of Fiesel a treatise on drawing and painting for schools, Academy of Fine Arts in Venice, Pleasures of England, all these works on art show Ruskin's literary industry, and we must also record Love's Mania Study of Birds, Proserpina Study of Flowers, Ducaliana Study of Waves and Stones, Besides various essays on political economy which indicate that Ruskin, like Arnold, had begun to consider the practical problems of his age, at the height of his fame, in 1860, Ruskin turned for a time from art, to consider questions of wealth and labor, terms which were used glibly by the economists of the age without much thought for their fundamental meaning. There is no wealth but life, announced Ruskin, life, including all its powers of love, of joy and of admiration, that country is the richest which nourishes the greatest number of noble and happy human beings, such a doctrine, proclaimed by Goldsmith in his deserted village, was regarded as a pretty sentiment, but coming from one of the greatest leaders and teachers of England it was like a bombshell, Ruskin wrote for essays establishing this doctrine and pleading for a more socialistic form of government in which reform might be possible, the essays were published in the Cornhill magazine, of which Thackeray was editor, and they aroused such a storm that the publication was discontinued. Ruskin then published the essays in book form, 
with the title unto this last, in 1862. Munira Palviri's 1862 was another work in which the principles of capital and labor and the evils of the competitive system were discussed in such a way that the author was denounced as a visionary or a madman. Other works of this practical period are Time and Tide, Furs Clavigera, Sesame and Lilies, and The Crown of Wild Olive. The latter part of Ruskin's life was a time of increasing sadness, due partly to the failure of his plans, and partly to public attacks you.